A cloud provider gives developers access to virtualized server infrastructure. When a developer rents this infrastructure via an API call, a virtual server is instantiated on physical machines. That virtual server needs to be made addressable through allocation of an IP address to make it reachable from the open internet. When the virtual server starts to receive too much traffic, that traffic needs to be load balanced with another virtual server. The backend networking code that runs a cloud provider needs to be fast, secure, and memory efficient. Languages that fit that description include C++, Rust, and Go. DigitalOcean is a cloud provider, and their low-level networking code is mostly written in Go. Sneha Nguva is an engineer with DigitalOcean who has written and spoken about writing networking applications using Go. She joins the show to talk about her work at DigitalOcean, including the implementation of a DHCP server, a network server that assigns IP addresses and other parameters to devices that sit on that network. Sneha Nguva, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. I've been a huge fan for a while, so I'm super excited and uh, humbled to be on the show. All right. Well, happy to have you on. You work at DigitalOcean, which is a cloud provider. Give me a few examples of engineering problems that you've worked on. So DigitalOcean, we are a cloud hosting provider. We have a variety of products in different areas, for example, with storage, with networking, as well as compute, which is probably, I guess, what most people are familiar with who use DigitalOcean. We have droplets or virtual machines that they can use. But the interesting thing, I think, as a cloud hosting provider is that it's a little different from other companies in which in that we have both physical hardware issues, we also have software issues, and then we also have a web application. So we've had interesting problems kind of all over the place. When I joined the company, I wasn't actually a network engineer. I was working on one of the internal delivery teams, is what we called it. And on that team, the biggest problem we were addressing was the difficulty in deploying and updating applications. So namely, working with Kubernetes. So that was definitely an interesting problem because I think we addressed both, you know, the challenge in building an abstraction layer on top of Kubernetes that increased the just ease of deploying because before that people used Chef and Chef was a little complicated in general. And then on top of that, also getting buy-in from different teams to kind of use this new internal tool that we had. So that that's kind of one of the problems we've had that we've addressed. As you've mentioned DigitalOcean is built around these abstractions called droplets. Can you say much about what a droplet is? Is it a VM? Is it a container? What am I actually interfacing with when I spin up a DigitalOcean instance? Of course. So it is a virtual machine. I think droplet is just our our marketing speak for everything oceanic themed in our company, but (laughs) it is essentially a virtual machine that is, I guess, technically co-located on servers with other virtual machines. And you can spin one of these up really in any location around the world. I think we have about 13 data centers. So that's super fun. I I also heard you mention containers. So right now we don't quite have containers as a service, but we have Kubernetes as a service. So technically speaking, you could kind of manage your containers as well. Although Droplet itself is just a virtual machine. Got it. Now, when you join a company, it's always tricky to find the bounds of what you should learn and what you should ignore, it's hard to know just how deep to go. And I know that when one of these virtual machines is spun up, there's a ton of stuff that is going on under the hood. What was your process for figuring out what to learn, the 
the life cycle of a user spinning up a VM? That's a really good point. In fact, I think I think we still do this when someone we have a for networking at least we have a really good onboarding process. For when I joined the company, not in networking, we also had still had a pretty good onboarding process, but it was more generic and there is in fact, I guess, an onboarding session called how the cloud works where an engineer who's been at the company for a while actually goes through the entire process and kind of goes through all the microservices that, I guess, receive a request and send a response, you know, down to the schedulers that actually are scheduling the droplet placement on a particular uh, hypervisor down to everything. So the thing is, I think most people probably have a general idea of the different services that are being touched. But then when it comes down to the nitty gritty of how exactly is networking set up, how is our like SDN configured, all of that, I don't think unless you're on that specific team, you are aware. So I'd say it's it's kind of a T-shaped process in a way. So you have a general like breadth of knowledge of how, I guess, the cloud works, quote unquote. But when it comes to the, the nitty gritty details, you probably have a very good idea of just your specific area. And I think it's impossible to have a very deep knowledge of absolutely every single service when you're at a company this large with this many microservices and with this many domains of expertise. Totally. Now, the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because I saw some talks that you gave, one specific talk about networking. And the term networking can mean a lot of different things, but I know that networking at a cloud provider and you being a systems engineer working at a cloud provider, you probably have some insights on the engineering that goes into the actual nitty-gritty of something spinning up within DigitalOcean. What does networking mean at a cloud provider? What does that term networking mean? So networking at a cloud provider, I think, has two layers. There's, of course, the, the physical infrastructure that is set up. So, of course, I think every cloud provider has physical switches, physical edge routers, a physical gateway. So that is definitely one layer. But then another thing that you have to consider is, especially at a cloud provider where you are dynamically creating and deleting virtual machines, is that you are constantly adding different paths for networking packets to traverse and removing them as well. So that's where software-defined networking comes in, and that's a completely different layer that you have to consider, especially at a cloud provider. And in fact, at DigitalOcean, we actually have a team that deals with a lot of the physical details when it comes to physical switches in our data centers. But we also have a, uh, I guess, SDN team, which has a lot of sub-teams that deal with a lot of the microservices that are interfacing and communicating with OVS, OpenVSwitch, which is our uh, virtual switch of choice that are actually making a lot of our networking products possible, such as, you know, such as VPC or firewalls or even DHCP, a lot of these different things. Tell me about some of the lower level networking concepts that you needed to know to build some of the projects that you've built within DigitalOcean. Of course. So I'll just take you through, I guess, uh, when I first joined the networking team, we were coming out with a product called Bring Your Own Image. So previously, when people typically spin up a new virtual machine or a droplet, they can select a predefined image, whether it's Ubuntu or I don't think we have Microsoft, but a different version of Ubuntu or one of many different options. However, 
with BYOY, we started giving them the option of bringing their own image. So the only issue with that is when we control the image ourselves, we can kind of control the, the cloud configuration, meaning allocating IP addresses and setting up a lot of configuration. But when they're bringing their own image, we need a way to dynamically allocate IP addresses for those droplets using that image. And that's where the DHCP protocol came in. And that was something that I had heard of, but I wasn't super familiar with. But in general, I guess whenever you're building a new networking product that's using a new protocol, my first step typically is to read the RFC. So I pulled up the DHCP RFC and then the DHCP v6 RFC, which is a little different, and started to learn about the protocol. And I guess most people at home are probably familiar with it when they log into their computer and they fire up the internet. Their ISP router actually allocates an IP address for their home computer. And so that's essentially using the DHCP protocol. So we were implementing our own, I guess, a hypervisor level daemon to do that for different droplets in our data center. And so that was something that I started to learn about. And then the other thing when you're a cloud hosting provider is you start to learn about perhaps the ways in which you might have abusive actors and kind of look into security. And so that was very interesting. And then you, you start to do a lot of load testing and try to figure out how to mitigate any possible issues. So that was also something else I started to look into when it came to the DHCP server. That phrase you mentioned, the RFC, reading the RFC, I've read some Quora answers and Wikipedia recommendations about if you want to learn networking concepts, you should read the RFC, which stands for the Request for Comments. Why is that the best path to learning about networking protocols? I mean, that is fundamentally where the networking protocols were designed. And some of these protocols were designed like decades ago. So I think that, of course, you could read, you know, Wikipedia articles, encyclopedia articles, YouTube videos, all of those are helpful. But I think that going to the kind of the original source of where this communication protocol was defined. Um, and of course, to be honest, the first time you read through any networking RFC, it won't 100% make sense. So obviously going through it, marking up everything you don't understand, which then, and then of course, every RFC is somehow linked to like 20 other RFCs. So then go, jumping to another RFC to kind of understand maybe another protocol that is used within a particular protocol kind of helps you I guess build sort of a like in, a mental map or like a mental knowledge tree of what that protocol actually does and what it is. Now, much of the networking code that you've written is in Go and the the talk that I saw was about writing network services in Go. Explain what makes Go an appealing language for writing networking code. So Go, I mean, I think there's a couple of issues, or not issues, but a couple of reasons. So first of all, Go is something that we've been using at DigitalOcean for a very long time. But then I think when it comes to networking in particular, I think Go is great because it has very easy to use concurrency primitives. And especially when you're writing, you know, some like a DHCP server or like an art proxy or any sort of networking service, you do have a lot of, uh, you're, you're dealing with a lot of concurrency and you might be dealing with like syncing access to memory. So the fact that you have these very easy to use concurrency primitives is very helpful. The other thing is I think Go has like a fairly mature ecosystem when it comes to 
to both networking and a lot of other like third-party packages for things such as HTTP servers or packages to kind of help like unmarshal different type of like layer four to layer seven packets such as uh, DHCP or ARP or what have you. So I think that that also helps. And then quite often, especially because at DigitalOcean, we're building a lot of networking services that run directly on the hypervisors themselves. A lot of them have like command line tools to interact with them. And like Go is, I think, amazing when it comes to third-party tools for building command line interfaces. So for all of these reasons, I think Go is great for networking. I know that you know a lot of people, when it comes to super high performance stuff, perhaps uh, like rely on C, or I know there's a lot of people who rely on Rust, but from what I've heard, you know, the ecosystem isn't as developed with Rust. And then with C, there's, of course, the issue of a lot of people are concerned about um, accessing memory and memory safety. So to be fair, it's also maybe not the most uh, readable language. Um, it's not as syntactically simple as Go. So I think for, for all of those reasons, Go has been great for us at DigitalOcean. I think the other thing I also mentioned is that we already used it and we have been using it for a long time. So we have a very rich Go mono repo with a lot of shared libraries. So when it comes to when it comes to instrumenting our networking services and then getting custom metrics or just general metrics out of them, a lot of that happens automatically by virtue of the service being in the mono repo itself. Since you mentioned that the term mono repo, maybe we could take a, a deviation from talking about Golang and talk about that word mono repo, what that actually means in terms of your work at DigitalOcean. Yeah, so we have a fairly large mono repo, um, meaning a, just a giant repository. And most of the Go applications that are written at DigitalOcean are basically or packages within the gigantic repository known as the mono repo. Uh, and the, the mono repo also has a name, which I think is kind of funny. It's called Cthulhu. It even has a logo, actually, at this point um, of like a giant sea monster. So the, the mono repo, I think there's been a lot of debate about the mono repo at DigitalOcean and the idea of mono repos in general. I feel like this is this is one of those topics that could always delve into kind of a holy war in a way. But I think at, at DigitalOcean, I, I think it predates me a few years when the mono repo was originally started. But I think it honestly did help us get to a point where I would say compared to a lot of companies, we're very on top of instrumenting our services and using observability, like all the observability primitives, such as centralized logging, using Prometheus metrics, and then also using distributed tracing. And so if you've looked at some of the distributed tracing libraries or kind of have to set up your own logger, quite often, I think a lot of engineers are just I mean, I wouldn't say lazy, but perhaps in a rush to deploy really quickly and might skip that step. But I think by by having these shared libraries in the mono repo that can very easily be included in a project without having to import or go get a package or anything, I think it just really lowers the bar and makes it quite easy to have best practices for our code. This even applies to, for example, gRPC. So we use gRPC, but we have a wrapper around gRPC that also automatically instruments all our services so they have metrics, logging, and tracing. So if we talk about a mono repo, are we saying that if I want to spin up a new service at DigitalOcean, there is this mono repo that I'm going to fork, and it gives me a boilerplate system of different libraries that I can call 
when I'm building my service and it gives me a great out-of-the-box experience. Is that what it is? Or is it like we're all committing to the same mono repo that gets deployed as just like copies of the same big single service? Oh, no. I mean, so I would say the the first as what you described. So it's a mono repo, but we don't have a monolithic application. So we have right. a mono repo, which uh, with a ton of subfolders and sub packages and all the different microservices are included within the mono repo, but they're deployed totally separately. But then the mono repo itself just contains all of the services. And then it contains shared libraries that are used by all of the services. And then we also have CI and CD set up that periodically tests everything in the mono repo. But I will say that I think using it, especially when I was onboarding as a new engineer, uh, definitely helped me uh, learn go, like proper Go practices and then kind of have an idea of how to even build like a very simple REST application or how to build a very simple server and a gRPC server and like use protobufs, for example. Because that repo comes out of the box with a lot of bells and whistles and like an easy onboarding experience or like an easy tutorial experience for just building a network service? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it comes out of the box with, I would say, pretty thorough documentation on how to use the different shared libraries and then how to use gRPC, for example. Or for networking, we have a lot of shared networking libraries that have been written by engineers on the networking team that also have like extensive documentation. So yeah. I basically, for all of those reasons, it definitely improves the onboarding experience. Can you talk a little bit more about those primitives that are in the monorepo? When you're like looking through this monorepo, you're exploring it, you're getting started, you know you're going to have to write some DHCP server, and I think you said you, you wrote a load balancer. Later on, we can get to that stuff, but you're starting to think about writing your own network application. You're looking through this mono repo. What are some of the systems and the services or method calls, libraries, things that you're seeing in this mono repo? Yeah. So for the DHCP server, for example, I know that it has a couple of aspects. Like first of all, I know that I'm going to be reading packets off the wire, unmarshalling them to some sort of data structure, processing them, and then responding to them. So there's the Go net package, of course. But then we kind of, within the company, within the monorepo and within the networking team, there's a lot of internal networking libraries. I guess I do a little more in terms of processing the packets and perhaps validating them. So that's that's one thing I would look into. So for the packets that I want to read, are there any internal packages that are available that help with just structuring them and reading them and then like marshalling them back and sending them on the wire? So that's that's one thing. The next thing for any sort of, I guess, DHCP server, I would start looking at, okay, I have this DHCP server. I probably want to have some sort of metric. I want to see how many requests are coming in, how many responses are going out, perhaps you know, have a count of how many errors are happening. So then I would think, okay, I probably need a metrics package. And let me look at the internal metrics, the shared internal metrics library called uh, Doge Metrics, and see how I can use that to take account of requests and responses, and then maybe look at errors. And then the next step, of course, is that within my DHCP server, I definitely want to log any errors. And I want to make sure all of those logs get to centralized logging, and then they have all of the appropriate additional, I guess, keys and values so I can easily process the logs. And so the next step would be also looking at the internally shared logging libraries. And then I guess 
One of the things I didn't even mention is, so we use gRPC. So for a DHCP server, of course, you know, it's a server that's listening on an interface. It's in a multicast group. But then perhaps we want our server to be able to receive messages from another service for whatever reason, just because of how it fits in our ecosystem. And in our case, our DHCP server is in fact getting um, RPC requests from another service. So we would then want to create a gRPC server. And of course, I could do this with, you know, just the normal Google gRPC packages that are out there. But I know that within our monorepo, we definitely have an entire section on using gRPC, on using protobufs, on uh, generating Go code and best practices for that. So then I would go to the gRPC wrapper libraries, look at the instructions, figure out how to do that, figure out how to use SSL, and then configure that as well. Let's come back to Go, and then we'll get back to the networking stack. But I I wanted to get back to Go before we get into this. Tell me about some of the concurrency primitives provided by Go and why those are useful for writing networking code. So I think I had mentioned earlier one of the the most basic concurrency primitives are Go routines. And then sometimes I think... I wonder if that perhaps the ease of using Go routines also makes it possible to abuse them. But in general, I would say that it's extremely easy to start like a a Go routine, simply put the word Go in front of a function. So I think that makes it pretty easy. On top of that, within Go, there's a package called sync. And then sync has mutexes that one can use to kind of lock access to shared memory, such as a particular function or a map. And in fact, there's something called a sync map. This is also super useful. The other thing, the thing that I've definitely used a lot, I would say is error groups and wait groups for a lot of Go services, actually, whether it's the DHCP server or whether it's just, you know, like a trying to make my own port scanner. These are tools that allow you to simultaneously kind of start a variety of Go routines and then block on the main thread and perhaps return early from these Go routines if there's a single error in the case of an error group or just block on the main thread and wait until all of your subroutines have finished. And these make it very easy, I think, to kind of spin off subtasks when you're processing a packet, for example, or perhaps like scan a bunch of different ports if you're building like a port scanner. And I think that that makes it super easy. The other thing that we've done a lot is just to make sure that we don't have like a go routine spike is to kind of use a semaphore in the form, like basically having a channel to kind of control the number of worker Go routines that we have. And we did this a lot for DHCP just in case the DHCP server happened to receive a lot of concurrent messages. Of course, we have protections, you know, outside of DHCP. We're using OVS after all, but for the service itself, just to protect the service and make sure it can't fall over, we use the concept of channels, which I guess are basically a, a communication conduit. <laughs> perhaps between different variables or different parts of the program, different Go routines in the program, just to ensure that we had a limited number of Go routines. That's great. Getting into an application, particularly the application you built, so there is this acronym DHCP, Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol. This is a protocol that assigns an IP address and other to some other configuration so that devices can communicate with each other with other IP networks. Describe what the purpose of DHCP is. Yes, of course. So in general, DHCP is used, I guess, by a router on a subnetwork to assign IP addresses to our particular host such that the host can communicate with other hosts on that subnetwork. 
when it came to our case, of course, there's a few ways to assign IP addresses to a particular virtual machine on a hypervisor, you know, just meaning a server with a bunch of other virtual machines. We could, of course, just assign them statically when they're spun up, but and that worked for a long time. But in our particular case, we needed to kind of dynamically assign them as soon as they were being spun up because we could no longer control all aspects of the virtual machine itself. So the virtual machine would come up, it would send a DHCP request to a particular multicast group, which happened to be the all routers group that our DHCP server is in, on the hypervisor. That hypervisor would then, I guess, check in an internal... So I think the way we're using DHCP is a little bit different than... That's the interesting thing in general at DigitalOcean. I think the way we do some networking is, is a little bit different than perhaps how it would be done traditionally, but it's also different just because of our general like layout and infrastructure and how we're using OVS. So in our case, we actually have something pushing data to our DHCP server, which happens to store a lot of IP address, MAC address kind of mapping internally. And so then when the, the actual droplet comes up and is online, it would talk, it would send a DHCP request over to the DHCP server, which would process the request, it would do some sort of validation, then it would acknowledge the request and then send over a particular IP address that could be used. And then the DHCP, uh, I probably need to like check this protocol again. Another reason to read the RFC repeatedly, it would then confirm that it is in fact using the IP address for a particular like lease time. Got it. So, you know, when you talk about building a DHCP server. I mean, this to me sounds like something that's been implemented a million times. Why isn't this something you can just take off the shelf? Why do you have to roll your own? That's a really good question. I mean, there's definitely probably large-scale DHCP servers that are out there that have been made available by other companies. But I think when you're building your own software-defined network and you have a very particular infrastructure, like a way of doing things. For example, in our case, we have an, uh, an instance of OVS on every single hypervisor. And that kind of is like has OVS flows or is shuttling packets a particular way on every hypervisor. We knew we wanted to use the DHCP protocol to assign IP addresses. But then we also needed to do that within the, our existing infrastructure in, I guess, the least disruptive way possible. And I guess one way to do that would be by building a very simple DHCP server that implements just the, the bits of the protocol you need to kind of make the IP allocation happen, but just on a hypervisor. So like, you know, in your home network, for example, your DHCP server is serving a lot of different computers on a lot of different machines. But in our case, the D, we have a, an instance of this hypervisor level daemon DHCP server that's on every single hypervisor that just has like a much smaller, I guess, I wouldn't call it bandwidth, just like a much smaller area that it covers. So of course, I think there's probably third-party Go packages that we could use for that. But I think at the time, we felt that kind of rolling our own would be the, the way to ensure that we had like the least amount of disruption to our existing architecture. Just to make it clearer what DHCP is, can you go a little bit deeper on that comparison? So what DHCP would mean for my router sitting at home versus what it means for DigitalOcean? So your router sitting at home would probably have, I think, maybe even a subnet of IP addresses it could allocate. So your router sitting at home, like when a computer comes up on the network, the computer would send over, I think it probably a 
it, or the router might send over a DHCP discover message, your computer might send over a DHCP request message, and then it would be allocated an IP address that it would essentially use for a particular period of time. And then the router itself is responsible for both determining the IP address and then allocating it to that particular host. However, on, in our case, we have a totally different way of allocating IP addresses. So our DHCP server is, is just limited to actually using the protocol to assign the IP address. It's not actually allocating that IP address itself. We have a different kind of algorithm and a, a different set of services that handle the IP address management. So we just needed something that already knows what IP address it's going to give to the virtual machine, but it's not necessarily doing the process of determining that IP address. It just is kind of a little, I guess, simpler. It just sends that IP address information over to the machine. And let's get into talking about the engineering of this particular application. So what does the code that you're writing actually do? It's an interesting question you ask, because I think when I also joined the networking team, having come from a totally different world, I was like, okay, I know what a DHCP server is. I know what a lot of these services are, but how do you even write this? And I think in my mind, I thought it would be a lot more complicated than it actually was. Because ultimately, all it's doing is your DHCP server, almost it's just like an HTTP server. It's like listening on a particular, in our case, the DHCP server is listening on a particular, I think we're using packet sockets. So it's listening on a particular interface on our machine, just waiting for packets to come in. When a packet comes in, we are essentially reading the different, like reading bytes of the packet, then breaking that down, reading the different parts of the packet, and based on the parts of the packet, for example, the DHCP header versus the payload, we can determine the type of request it is. And so based on the type of request, we know what it's asking for. So is it DHCP confirmation message, or is it a request asking for an IP address, or what exactly does it want? And then once we actually read that address, we might do some sort of validation to just confirm that the request is legitimate. And then all we do is we simply send a response back from our server through this raw interface, which is then sent out back to the virtual machine. It's essentially just doing some packet processing, validation. There's some logic in there. Not, I mean, I was going to make a joke, just a giant if-else statement. It isn't. It's a little <laughs> more complicated than that. Just having some logic in there, crafting a response, and then maybe like grabbing the IP address if it's a request message, and then sending that back. Was there some kind of moment where you felt, oh, this is actually just like writing an HTTP server, which most of the people in the audience have probably stood up, you know, the analogy is very close between an HTTP server and a DHCP server. They just need to do different things. Yeah, I, for sure. I think probably after I read the entire RFC in detail and then realized that it's essentially, you know, HTTP is also kind of request response based and DHCP is also a layer seven protocol that's also request response based. So it's very similar. We have a client, we have a DHCP server and you know they're sending messages back and forth. The main difference is in the case of an HTTP server and especially in using the GoNet package, we're using TCP sockets under the hood. But then in the case of our DHCP server, because we wanted to kind of get the entire ethernet frame, we've dropped down a few layers and we're actually using uh, raw packet sockets. So we're kind of how we're reading the data is a little bit different. 
And the, the sort of socket on the system we're connecting to is different. But really, we're just getting in some data, getting in some bytes, parsing it, reading it, and sending a response back. And so it was definitely an aha moment, I think, after I read the RFC. And then I guess the other thing that I love to do is look at existing packages and then kind of just like really dive deep into them to try to find out like within the net package or within the, the raw package, what are the syscalls being made? And then I understand like under the hood, oh, this is how it works. It's like not that complicated at the end of the day. Coming to another question about Go, you know, I think a lot of the people listening, probably they've written an HTTP server in like Node.js or Java or something. My sense is that, again, Go was particularly useful for this lower level networking that you're doing. Just revisiting the question of Go, why was Go and its concurrency primitives so useful for writing this DHCP server? I would say in the case of Go, I think just, I mean, I haven't used Node.js in a while, but for Go, I would say that it was very useful simply because within the standard library itself, there are a lot of networking packages that, well, two things. There's a lot of networking packages that make it very easy, even if you don't have a package that allows you, for example, to drop all the way down to layer two, using the existing packages in the standard library, you can craft your own package to do that. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is the concurrency primitives make it very easy to handle like simultaneously a lot of traffic, but then also prevent your service from kind of being DDoSed or knocked over. Like there's a lot of primitives to kind of control the number of simultaneous requests that are being processed, for example or the amount of access to shared memory. But then kind of going back, talking about the Go package. So I guess a specific example I can give for DHCP, for example, and especially when it comes to Go, is that if you're using the net package in Go, you can kind of drop down to layer four. And so you can use TCP sockets or UDP sockets and then kind of process your packets. However, in the case of our DHCP server, I was working on this with with my colleague at the time, he wanted to drop down all the way to layer two in order to kind of have access to the entire ethernet frame. So with the TCP packet, you wouldn't have access to additional headers such as the source MAC address, but he wanted to have access to that. So he looked and go, there really wasn't anything that existed, but There was the syscall package, there was the OS package, there was the Unix package. There were a lot of ways to get all the way down to layer two and make Linux syscalls. So he ultimately kind of rolled his own package that was really easy to do using existing packages that were already within the standard library. So that made it very easy to jump all the way down to layer two and read from the like, I guess the raw packet sockets. But then when we actually do get those ethernet frames and then we want to kind of play around with them or like read the data within them, like because Go, I think is like a fairly mature ecosystem when it comes to networking, there were a lot of third-party packages. There was like a, there's actually a package called DHCP that helps you parse like bytes of data and do DHCP packets with all the like necessary, I guess, different fields in the DHCP packet. And that made it really easy to like we could easily combine a bunch of packages and then build this DHCP server fairly quickly. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. And another application that you built was a load balancer, right? Yeah. So this is something that I did kind of outside of DigitalOcean, but it was a lot of fun because, you know, load balancers is something everyone's familiar with. 
uh, well, okay, a lot of people are, maybe not everyone on the planet, a lot of people are familiar with. It's something that you probably might wonder how it works. And then I think it's something that also gets you kind of intimately familiar with the different layers of networking. So for the load balancer, I think I had, I'd been on this, the networking team at DigitalOcean for a while. I was talking to some of my friends outside of DigitalOcean and mentioned that I kind of just wanted to start building different networking primitives to really gain like a deep understanding of how these things worked. And obviously they wouldn't be production ready because to get a production ready load balancer is complicated. You have a lot of algorithms. You really care about performance. So throwing that all aside, I just wanted to understand how it worked. And then I also realized that there's different ways to create load balancers. You can handle everything at like layer seven and make an HTTP load balancer, or you could drop down all the way to layer four and then make like a TCP proxy, which you wouldn't have access perhaps to all the additional headers, but then you could have any other protocol going over the load balancer. So I ended up working with them and we kind of pair programmed every week and we made both of these load balancers. Then we decided to kind of, you know, compare what we could do with each one. And then the final step, I guess, was determining how we would actually, how we would fix this if we wanted it to be production ready. So I think the best example of that for the layer four TCP proxy, for example, is in like my extremely naive um, load balancer implementation. I was kind of waiting for an incoming connection and then would open a new connection to one of a few backends every time. But in reality, that's pretty inefficient. And then you're also doing like a TCP handshake for every connection you're opening to the backend. So real life load balancers or, you know, I guess the Linux networking stack has IPVS, which is another layer for load balancer, don't necessarily do that. They might just munge the incoming packet and then send it straight to the backend and connections are formed directly with the backend rather than as an intermediary within the load balancer. So your writing of a load balancer was to prepare you for writing the DHCP server? Not quite. I think it, it was actually after the DHCP server. I think... The writing of the load balancer. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, it was a, I guess this is something I want to start doing again. It was sort of like a personal exercise where I wrote down a list of, I guess, different networking primitives that I wanted to know how they worked. And I figured the best way to do that would be by building one. So I think load balancer was one of them. Port scanner was one of them. And then I think at some point, I just want to build a router just to see how that works. So it was part of like a, an exercise to see how, how to do it. And then I figured it would obviously be useful for work, just like figuring out how I would theoretically build these things in the event that I ever had to. I mean, we pro to be honest, I think most people actually use, there's a lot of open source load balancers that are really good. So most people use load balancers. So maybe not load balancers, <laughs> but other services. Something I'm pretty sure you actually did, a different project you did for work was... You worked on sharding a Prometheus server, right? Yeah. So we've done a, a couple shows about this topic, but my understanding is basically Prometheus is a really widely used monitoring tool in the Kubernetes ecosystem, although it doesn't you don't necessarily have to use it with Kubernetes. It's like a distributed monitoring or uh, metrics server. And if you collect a lot of metrics from Prometheus, you're going to have a large set of metrics. You're going to have a, a gigantic database of metrics. And there have been a multitude of scalability projects, people trying to scale the Prometheus database. Am I describing that problem statement correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely correct. I think there's been a lot of different approaches. 
It's something that we kind of also faced at DigitalOcean. In our case, we had moved to using Prometheus a few years ago. Things were going well, but I think things are going so well, in fact, that a lot of teams spun up their own instance of Prometheus, which is great. But when it comes to you know managing all these instances of Prometheus, there was an observability team that was formed. And I think the, the theory was that it would be best if the singular observability team were able to kind of handle everything to do with Prometheus, like just monitoring Prometheus itself. So doing a lot of self-monitoring, monitoring different Promethei, making sure they could update the Promethei, and then kind of just being there to help offer support and guidance for different teams that were using Prometheus. So to do this, they decided that they needed to kind of have like a like a horizontally, I guess, functionally sharded Prometheus setup and a way to kind of dynamically configure each of these Promethei, especially, or I guess there's a lot of arguments about the plural of Prometheus, but I'm going to go with Promethei for the duration That's of this fine, talk. I accept. Excellent. So there's a lot of talk about how to actually configure all these Promethei because when you end up with like 200 instances, it's obviously not... It's not really scalable to manually handle anything. And especially when you have a lot of services that are coming up or going down, and then you also have Kubernetes clusters that you're like managing, it's best to kind of centrally manage this in an automated way. So one of my previous colleagues kind of came up with an interesting solution where we have kind of a, and I think there's been a lot of talks on this as well at PromCon, where we have a, an internal repo where all teams will add their the whatever services or like, I don't know, databases or what have you, they want to have scraped. And then we actually have CI that runs, kind of parses the changes that the team has made to this particular repository, of course, managed by YAML files, and then kind of pushes these, I guess it's just almost like a controller and then a bunch of different controllers on the different Promethea instances. So these changes are pushed to the central controller and then that sends whatever changes to all of the controllers that are running as daemons alongside the different instances of Promethei and updates their configuration dynamically so they happen to know what new services or what new instances they should be scraping. And I think it was actually a very clever solution that my colleague came out with and it definitely I think has just made it so much easier to kind of manage all of these different services that are being scraped and especially as new services are being added or even new hypervisors or new droplets are being added. It makes it like flawless in a way. It's remarkable the challenge that you encountered with the Prometheus scalability and the fact that you just have all these different teams that are scaling up their different Prometheus servers. I feel like I've heard that story a couple times, at least once talking to people from Uber. Have you talked to other people at other companies that have had similar issues with scaling Prometheus or, or creating observability systems or protocols within the company for dealing with this particular piece of infrastructure? Yeah, yeah, I definitely have. I think a lot of people have first maybe tried to kind of vertically scale it or just put Prometheus on progressively larger virtual machines until, of course, they realized there was a point at which they absolutely had to shard it. And then it kind of came down to what's the best way to sort of shard or like divide management of all these different services. And I think the interesting thing is I do think every like the trend is that everyone kind of proceeds to maybe the the same way of functionally sharding. It's a term that someone from Prometheus used when I kind of described how we were sharding. And he was like, yeah, that, that's really how Prometheus was created to be used, not to be like one gigantic instance, but something that's functionally sharded and can be used with like different clusters of services. But then it just when it comes to figuring out how to manage those clusters of services and update that configuration, 
I guess that's where things get a little complex. And then, yeah, I would say some companies probably move to like an on-prem solution where they, or something where they create something themselves. And then I think a lot of other people move to some sort of managed Prometheus service. I think there's a couple out there that have been created by people who were part of the Prometheus founding team. So yeah, I do think that a lot of people trend towards kind of the same problem and then either build something themselves or find something that already exists and pay for it. What other observability challenges have you encountered within DigitalOcean? Uh, That's a really good question. I think probably the biggest issue that everyone always faces is maybe like absurd cardinality in their metrics, where in Prometheus, when you add a particular label that actually creates an entirely new time series. So for example, adding a UUID as a label is kind of like a terrible idea in general, because um, you're adding kind of a new time series for every label and you don't really want super, that's something that that is better to show up in logs versus in metrics. But unfortunately, especially when you're using a lot of third-party exporters, they don't have the best practices or the best behavior for metrics labeling. So you end up with situations where you have cardinality explosions. For example, I think there's some CICD uh, metrics exporters that have been created by third parties that just kind of add a label. They add a lot of labels for different CI runs, but then that creates a massive amount of labels and a massive amount of time series. And that could, in fact, just cause the time series to take up a huge amount of space on disk and then the Prometheus server falls over. So I think teaching people or learning how to properly use metrics and then also kind of navigating the whole area of using third-party metrics exporters for existing things like CICD or databases and then making sure that those don't actually kill your Prometheus server is definitely one of the challenges I would say that that's been faced. While we're on the subject of Well, since we're talking about Prometheus, I guess that's tangentially related to to Kubernetes. But I would be curious about how Kubernetes has affected DigitalOcean. I mean, you mentioned from the product perspective, the idea of spinning up a Kubernetes cluster on DigitalOcean is obviously useful. I'm also just curious if it's useful internally, if Kubernetes is used by internal teams at DigitalOcean, or how the technology has affected the cloud provider overall. Yeah, so before we even had Kubernetes as a service, we used or we offered it as a service, we used it for a very long time. I think honestly it was amazing introducing Kubernetes as a service. So prior to that, this was a few years ago and I actually this is the team that I was first hired to work with. Most people would have like the chef guy on their team, the guy who was really good with chef and really good with Ruby and writing chef tests and everything. And quite often and I'm not even joking about this, it would take longer to configure a chef cookbook or a recipe or make changes to chef tests than it would take to actually update a service itself. And it was quite complicated and not everyone knew how to do it well. And so we went from kind of that era to having an abstraction over Kubernetes, which is called DOCC, and then having a CLI tool to interact with this abstraction that was incredibly simple and just having the ability to deploy app applications within seconds. And I think the best evidence of that is we actually had a hackathon maybe like a few months or a year after after our abstraction layer on top of Kubernetes that we use internally was rolled out to different regions. And it was crazy. I think there were like hundreds, if not thousands of applications in the hackathon that were just really easily deployed to some of our like staging Kubernetes servers. And I feel like that's like the best evidence that it just made it very easy to deploy and update applications. 
And then the other thing is it also made it very easy to add TLS and security to your applications because we had a really interesting way where we use different Kubernetes primitives and sidecars to, to kind of auto almost automatically do that. Cool. Well, Sneha, it's been really great talking to you. I wonder if you have any closing reflections on working at a cloud provider. I haven't interviewed too many people that work at cloud providers. So you also work remotely, which I actually didn't know about that before this call. But I always thought of DigitalOcean as a I mean, because I've been to the office, so I didn't actually uh, envision that it was uh, a remote organization. I also think of a cloud provider as these people that have to work all centralized together because there's like servers nearby. But I realized that the people who actually build and maintain the servers are at a very different place than the people writing the code that gets deployed to those servers. So, But maybe you could just give me some reflections on working at a cloud provider and the kinds of problems you're working on today. So the funny thing is I think a lot of people have that view as well, but the, the company is actually 60% remote. And I think especially when you're a cloud provider that have co-located data centers, there's often like another... So of course we have people at data centers like handling everything when it comes to like physical server stacks, but there's also like teams to help just with emergencies as well. So there's definitely people like physically there, but I would say most like a lot of the work, believe it or not, is kind of done not from within the data center itself. I personally, and like, I think just in general about working at a cloud provider, I think it's amazing largely because there's so many different areas that you can dive into. And especially I think at DigitalOcean, like on the cloud side, like once I moved from kind of like an internal team that serviced other developers to being closer to kind of like our cloud primitives, I realized that there's a lot to learn like on a near constant basis. So right now I'm in networking, which I find fascinating. And I've like worked on multiple projects in networking. So previously I worked on DHCP. Now I've moved to a team that's kind of like focused on some of the scaling issues at DigitalOcean and kind of trying to change our networking architecture from layer two to layer three. And then kind of looking at how that'll improve performance and then kind of looking at how to fix like existing issues with maybe IP addresses, for example. And so I think that the problems that you often face at a cloud provider, there's like not that many people who deal with that level of scale or like that many companies. So I think you like constantly find super interesting problems or scalability issues. And you can like really drop down pretty low and do a lot of systems level work. So I, I think for that reason, it's been a lot of fun working here. And, and I've even thought like, if I didn't do networking, what would I do? And there's like an entire world of storage that I haven't even explored. That's also incredibly important when we have a lot of storage products such as object or block. So I think for that reason, it's very interesting. And like you constantly see new problems. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you, Sneha. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. 